Thank you, ladies. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. You did a great job. I appreciate that. Genesis 39. Good crowd. I'm glad to see each one of you back tonight. When we left uh, Joseph last time, he was plotting, brokenhearted on his way to slavery in Egypt. He was bound and carried away without even a glimmer of hope. He is from all outward appearances abandoned by God and man. He was stripped of even his clothing and sold by his brothers. If ever a man had a reason, justification to hate and to seek revenge, it was Joseph. In verse 1, we are told that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites whom he had taken, who had taken him down there. Now, as Joseph made his journey, he must have realized that whatever lay ahead of him was also a part of God's plan for his life. And that God could preserve him and protect him as, as well in Egypt as anywhere else. We know, of course, that Joseph's life in Egypt was a success. We know that because we have heard those stories since we were children in Sunday school. But the question is, what made Joseph a success? Well, Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. The story of Joseph's success is found bracketed between two declarations found at the beginning and at the end of our story. The first is found in verses 2 and 3 where it says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. He, he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. We find the same truth at the end of the story in verses 21 and 23. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. I think it's encouraging to realize that we don't, know, we don't have to know how God's plan is going to work out in order to know that God's plan is going to work out. Joseph learned two very valuable lessons. One that was that God had a plan for his life. And the second was that that plan required him to be faithful on his part. And those two truths governed and influenced everything that Joseph did. In fact, everyone around him took note that there was something different about Joseph. Now, this is more than a story of sexual intrigue. It is the story of the clash of two cultures, of two standards of living. Joseph represents those who belong to God, those whose lives are a reflection of his revealed word. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, 
represents those who see no higher authority than themselves, who live only for the gratification of their own wants and desires. When we view this story from this perspective, we begin to see it as more than just an ancient drama. We see it as a drama that's still being acted out every day. As people of God, we are still called to live out the revealed truth of God's Word. But we still find that we're living in a culture that is not only hostile to the things of God, but is also intent on seducing the children of God to live on their level. We pick up with Joseph's story in verse 4. It says, So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from that time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. I don't know, can you imagine being Joseph, sold as a slave by your own brothers, yet having the ability to live in such a manner that others grow to trust you? Joseph lived in such a way that Potiphar saw the Lord in his life. When we see over and over repeated in our text, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that means Jehovah. That's God's name. He's saying it was Jehovah God that was being recognized in Joseph's life. He was not just being recognized that he was successful, but even Potiphar as a pagan recognized that that success was coming because of his adherence to Jehovah God. Joseph's life brought praise from an important officer of the king, even though he was a pagan. And we have to wonder if our life has that effect on those around us who don't know the Lord. Tonight, I want to share with you five principles concerning temptation that can be drawn from the life of Joseph. First of all, principle one, temptation often comes when we least expect it. Verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said to him, lie with me. Now there's one little intriguing sidelight perhaps. And that is the word that translated officer in our English translation. The word that is translated from the Hebrew, <clears throat> means eunuch, which means that Potiphar had the reputation of being a eunuch. That either means, as it typically does, a male who has been castrated. It was often done for someone in a king's service who, so that they could give their complete concentration to work, which would, might give us an inkling of what was going on behind the scenes here, or it is also possible that by this time the term had simply come to mean one who held that position of honor in Pharaoh's army. But at this point, Joseph is on top of the world. All his work has paid off. He didn't come to this position soon or quickly. You can imagine that as he came from 
his home as a shepherd that he started out in the fields and little by little they began to see that whatever they did and whatever they put him over, he, it began to prosper. And he was moved from one responsible position to another until he was at the very top. It was now that he had a responsible position <clears throat> that the temptation came. Beware of the temptation when you have experienced a victory or when you think you have arrived. Remember, temptation came to King David when he was in his 50s. He had unified his kingdom. He had expanded his borders. He had brought peace to the region. And it was then that he was tempted and he fell. The Hebrew has a wonderful way of telling what Potiphar's wife did. It literally says she lifted up her eyes at Joseph. The Living Bible says she made eyes at Joseph. But if we hadn't picked up on what Miss Potiphar's intentions were, it made it crystal clear with her words, Come, lie with me. Joseph could have given in and he could have done exactly as he was asked, but he perhaps could have justified it because of all the bad things that had happened in his life and where he was at. And it doesn't matter, however, that if she was lonely or if she was attractive or if she was available or anything else. Wrong is still wrong no matter what. Perhaps, though, we need to stop for just a moment and establish one truth, and that is it's not a sin to be tempted. Many Christians feel needless guilt because they have been tempted, and they have equated temptation with sin. Sin is the yielding to temptation. It is not just being tempted, being tempted. Even the Lord himself was tempted. Yet according to Hebrews 4.15, he was without sin. Temptation is a sign that we live in a fallen world. It is not temptation that matters. It is how we respond to it. Principle number two, temptation always tries to make sin look acceptable. We really need to have our reasons in mind before temptation ever comes our way. So that if we find ourselves unable to remember our reasons until later, we at least remember that we had reasons. Reasons for obeying God and living in response to them, rather than surrendering to our passions. We really do have to make up our minds about sin in advance. If we wait until we're tempted, then it will be too late. But because Joseph had settled all of these things in his mind beforehand, Joseph did not have to hesitate to put them into practice. The first thing that he did was he endeavored to reason with Mrs. Potiphar. It says in verse 8 and 9, but he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what, what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? And then notice that last little sentence there. 
this great wickedness and sin against God. The Bible says simply that Joseph refused. He pointed out, obviously, the sacredness of marriage. Joseph knew his character and his reputation and the trust that had been given him were at stake. He did not see this as some harmless act, but he saw it as a sin against God. For Joseph to violate the Lord's will in this matter would certainly damage his testimony that he had among the Egyptians. It would destroy his witness. It would have undermined any trust that his master was developing about the one true God. Joseph recognized that sin is not an alternative lifestyle. It's not innocent experimentation. It's wickedness. And it remains so, regardless of what we rename it in our day. We can find, always find some way to rationalize and make excuses when we want to yield to temptation. In addition, he saw that that sin was something that is also harmful to other human beings. There are people who trust us not to yield to temptation. Our children, our marital partners, our fellow Christians, and last but not least, our watching lost friends and associates. Joseph also understood that sin is primarily an offense against God. Like David, who later on prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That phrase, against you and you only, <clears throat> carries a significant meaning. It means against you and you in particular, as he spoke to God. Principle number three, to be victorious over temptation, we have to avoid known areas of temptation. Temptation was strong because it came to Joseph repeatedly. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12. Her request sought to bring the two of them into closer contact, and they were all refused. Verse 10 says, So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to even be with her. Not only did Joseph consistently refuse the invitation of Potiphar's wife, but he eventually refused to even be in the same room with her. What wisdom we see in his actions. If you want to avoid sin, then stay away from the places, people, and things that entice you to sin. Had she succeeded in seducing Joseph, it is probable that it would not have been her first nor her last extramarital affair. Someone has termed temptation this way. Temptation is like a telemarketer. It comes to us when it is least convenient. It comes back again and again. It keeps pushing even when we say no. And it makes what it is selling sound great. But there's always a catch. Principle number four. <clears throat> to be victorious over temptation, you may have to literally remove yourself. Joseph had the good sense to flee from temptation. 
Joseph had to, to run, literally, to get away from this woman. Verse 11 and 12. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the, ha- the men of the house were inside that she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he's late. he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. I like the way the King James Version translates that. It says he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Nobody else was going to get him out. If he was going to resist sin, he had to get himself out. It was no time to reason any further. It was not a time to pray about it or meditate. The only godly course of action was to flee from her. I have to wonder if the Apostle Paul had this in mind when he wrote wrote to the church in Corinth much later. And he gave this warning in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Paul went on later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 in verse 13 to write, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There is a way out if we will take it. We sometimes, though, seem to like to see how close we can get to sin without actually falling. We have a tendency to walk as close to sin as we can get and try to get away with it. It's true of immorality and it's true of every other sin. The longer we wait, the harder it is to react. Instead of acting decisively against sin, we flirt and we see how far we can go without actually getting burned. We fantasize We say no, but we play with yes. We return again and again to play with sin. But this is foolishness. The more we play, the weaker we become. Before long, we've lost all perspective and developed desires that are powerful and destructive. The moment we allow ourselves to debate the merits of wrong behavior, we have given in to the devil and given him a foothold. In most of our situations, we cannot say that the temptation we face was beyond our control. Many of the temptations we face are those that we have allowed, perhaps even encouraged. Principle number five, being victorious over temptation will not necessarily make you popular. And so it was, verse 13... When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. And so she kept his garment with her until his master came. And then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant who you brought to us came to me and to mock me. 
And so we happened, so it happened as I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And then Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And it was there, he was there in the prison. Well, two things happened very quickly. Potiphar's wife brings a false accusation in verses 18 and following. And Joseph is unjustly imprisoned. Perhaps part of her motivation in making that false accusation was to protect herself. To protect the, in case the, it come out about her flirtatious conduct with, with Joseph. If such a case arose, then she wanted to be covered. No doubt Potiphar's wife's plan was also to make Joseph regret his resistance. For doing right, Joseph was put in prison. What made Joseph's imprisonment all the more difficult to bear was that it was utterly and unequivocally unjust. Now, as Christians today, we sometimes seem to think that obedience always brings success and prosperity. Joseph in, Joseph's imprisonment causes us to rethink the success strategies that are so popular in many circles in our world today. Obedience does not shield us from pain. And the good guys do not always win immediately. However, <clears throat> Potiphar's punishment of Joseph is not as severe as one might have expected. After all, he was the captain of the guard, which meant he was the king's executioner. The historian Alfred Edersheim describes Potiphar's position as chief of the executioners. Under ordinary circumstances, a man accused of such actions in Egyptian culture would have been put to death. How much more so if it involved the wife of Potiphar, the chief of the executioners. Just a simple word would have meant that Joseph's head was removed immediately. So why did Potiphar have mercy on Joseph? Well, we certainly have to say God's hand of protection was upon Joseph. But from a purely human perspective, I think Potiphar may not have been all too certain that his wife was telling him the utter and complete unvarnished truth. Perhaps his anger was directed as much toward her as it was toward Joseph. Interestingly, two passages in chapter 40, verses 3 and verses 7, make it almost certain that the prison that is being referred to was located in Potiphar's house, that it was probably a dungeon in his basement. Joseph's imprisonment by Potiphar, while unpleasant at best, could see, be seen at least in part as an answer to Joseph's prayers. 
He said, no, wait, you lost me on that one. How is that an answer to Joseph's prayers? Surely one of his most often repeated and earnest prayers were, Lord, please protect me from this woman. And that is exactly what those prison bars did. True, it kept Joseph in, but it kept Potiphar's wife out as well. There are some things that are, there is some things worse than going to jail for doing right. And one of them is living with the consequences of doing wrong. If we're going to be victorious over temptation, we have to do what Joseph did. The Bible says simply that Joseph refused. Verse 8. When you're tempted to do wrong this week, just refuse. When Satan whispers in your ear, go ahead, everybody's doing it, just refuse. When you feel like giving someone a piece of your mind, first of all, realize you don't have it to give away. And secondly, just smile and refuse. When a business associate asks you to do something that is not ethical, just remember who you are and refuse. All of us can probably identify with the words of C.S. Lewis when he wrote, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. Perhaps this evening there have been times that you've tried to be victorious over temptation. And in some of those attempts you were unsuccessful. You may be filled with shame at the recollection of past failures. Most of us are. Joseph stood in the time of temptation, but we may have fallen. And because of past failure, we're tempted to to give up on all effort to live a pure life. And instead, because of our failure, just go on. But it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. The truth is there is forgiveness and restoration available to all who turn to the Lord. First, one, first John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reminder of temptation, how it will come our way, how we live in a society very much like uh, Joseph's, a society that wants us to fail, a society that wants us to live on their level. I pray that you'd help us to be cautious when we see those things that are leading us in a wrong direction. We might implement those principles in our lives that you've given us. Father, we want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.